Um, But if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, every week we get together and we open up the Bible to build our faith in God. Because if we're honest, we come together with uh, a lack of faith. We believe in Jesus, and he's, he's changed our lives in some ways, but there are also a lot of ways where we just don't believe like we should, where we are not what we should be, because if we did believe, our lives would look different. If we really believed that God is who he says he is in the scriptures, it would change our response to him. It would change the way that we think on a day-to-day basis. It would change the way that we feel. And for us as a church, faith is not just a nebulous good feeling about things. Faith is not just this confidence that uh, the future is bright. Faith is actually being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's knowing and believing a little bit of who God is, how he acts, how he thinks, what he promises, what he does, and then taking our role in the story that he's telling with all of history. Now, when we say that, when we say that we can know who God is and what he thinks and how he acts, that can come across as kind of arrogant. Um, now, here we are gathering together because we've got God all figured out, and, and we'll tell everybody about this infinite being that we have nailed. Um, you know, we even have a lot of arrogant titles, like I have a master's in religion, which is a joke. I mean, <laughs> how do you master this? How do you master who God is? How, uh, there is no way to have a real master's in divinity because he's infinite and we're not. And the Bible says that. It says that he is inscrutable, that there there are things about God we will never grasp and never understand. We can never know him fully, but we can know him truly. In fact, I want to show you this in Romans 11 before we jump into Ecclesiastes. In verse 33, it talks about how, how much God is big and up and beyond us. And it says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we believe in this God that we just can't fully understand because he's so big and so far beyond us. But then at the same time, this passage that says God's big and beyond us and hard to understand, this passage talks about some of the things about God that we do understand. It says that he's all-knowing and and nobody really knows his mind. It says that he's self-sufficient, so we can't give him a gift. He doesn't need us. It says that he's the source of all of creation, that he's the reason for it, that all of this exists to glorify him. So it tells us some true things about God in the same breath when it says that we can't understand God. So we can't understand him fully, but we can understand him truly. We can't fully know him. We can't have him mastered, but he's revealed himself so we can know who he is. And the things that we know, while they won't be exhaustive about him or about his plan, they should shape us into different people. And in our passage today, we're going to see this picture of God painted in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that shows that he is a God who is big and above all things, who rules over all things, who rules over every second, who reigns in his majesty. And if we believe that, If we believe that we have a big God who's transcendent and beyond us and that he's in control of all things, then that shape us into people who recognize that we don't have to be. And for a lot of us, that would be a big change. If we really believed that God were in control, then we wouldn't feel like we have to do it all the time because a lot of us come here, even come to church, with a God complex. 
And I'm not talking just when we think about a God complex, you think about you know, the TV show and it's got this arrogant surgeon who, who says everybody's life is in my hands and he manipulates all the people. He's always the master of his surroundings. So we think God complex is this arrogant jerk who thinks he's bigger and better than everything around him. And it can manifest itself that way. But more often than not, it manifests itself in our worries. Where I've got this God complex that says that I need to be God, I need to be in control. And then because I recognize that I'm not in control and I can't keep life together and things aren't going according to plan or I don't know where things are going in the future, I worry, I get anxious, I get weighed down by that. And sometimes that looks like humility. We think that a humble person is a person who's worried and anxious, but the Bible actually says humble people are people who don't have those cares. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, listen to the, the contrast here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it says, humble yourself, casting your anxieties on God. So a humble person is a person who's not bearing his anxieties anymore. A proud person is a person who's anxious or who's arrogant. So we come bringing an awful lot of pride. And it doesn't look like we would normally expect it to look. But when we think that we're supposed to be in the driver's seat and we recognize that this car that we're trying to steer is out of our control, then the anxiety that comes is just evidence that we've stepped into the role of God in our lives. And so God's given us Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to show us really how to get our joy and our peace back by recognizing that he is the one who's in control and then living accordingly so that we don't have to. In this passage in Ecclesiastes 3, this was a passage that was made popular uh, by Pete Seeger and his band The Birds in the 1960s, and it's the most popular passage in this book, um, the to everything there is a season, uh, turn, 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 he threw in there, he's looking for a filler, I guess, but um, that, that song is a popular one, you see it in Vietnam era movies, it was written in the 60s, and so it's, uh, it's in Forrest Gump, it's in Vietnam era TV shows like The Wonder Years, uh, you, you hear that song all the time. And it was a song that was written basically word for word with the exception of turn, turn, turn from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, now Solomon wrote this 2,700 years before Pete Seeger did. And, and Solomon did not get a royalty, but he was, he was okay with that because he, he did pretty well for himself. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he lays out this picture of God who is over everything and appoints everything in its season. And if we believe this, it will change us. Uh, so let's pray and ask God to open our eyes and our hearts so that we can believe this. Uh, Father, as we look at your word, we recognize that we very often try to sit in your throne. Uh, we try to rule and reign over our lives. We try to be the masters of our destiny. And Lord, every time we try, it just doesn't work. It's like we're trying to fit these pieces of a puzzle together that don't work. And life just doesn't work when we're in that situation. So God, help us to believe that. But then help us to believe in your good rule and reign over all things. Help us to believe in your glory and majesty and the way that you have shaped everything so that, um, so that it all goes according to your purpose and in the end all resolves for your glory and for our good. God, help us to believe that not just as a nice thought but as a life-shaping truth that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Our God is sovereign. He rules. There's nothing that doesn't fall under his reign. And at the same time, God, help us to believe that you're good so that these things that are happening are not happening for our destruction, but for our benefit and for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, he frames this whole poem that he's about to recite with, uh, with one line describing the whole thing. And he says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. 
So he's about to tell us about everything that happens under heaven. And he says, for everything, there's a season and there's a time for every matter or for every purpose under heaven. Everything that happens under God's reign happens for a reason. And then he's going to go through and he's going to give us a bunch of couplets where he gives us a pair of things that are opposites to describe how, he, how it encompasses everything in between. Uh, we'll do this. For example, if we were to say, listen, I searched high and low for my car keys. We're not saying that we only searched high and low, but we didn't search in between. So we're not saying, I checked the attic in the basement, but not anywhere else. When, when we say, I looked high and low for my car keys, we're saying, I searched everywhere. Or if we say, this guy was loved by young and old. We don't say the people in their 40s were just kind of like, nah, I don't really like the guy. Like, um, we're saying that, that young and old and everybody in between loved him. And so now Solomon, as he's speaking to us and giving us the word of God in verse 2 here, he says, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And he's not saying that the time of our birth and the time of our death are the only things that God's appointed. He says those times and everything in between have been appointed by a good God who rules and reigns over everything. So there was a day that we were born, there's a day that we'll die, and none of us have any say on when those things are going to happen. God appointed those. He's the one who rules over our times and our seasons. He rules over the days and the seasons of our lives. Then he goes on and he says there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So he says as we look out at the physical world, as we look at nature, it's clear that we can't rule over that. There are seasons and there is a time for planting and there is a time for harvesting and seed time and harvest were not determined by us. They were determined by God who rules and reigns and appointed those things for a purpose. Even if we look at animal life and all the stuff that looks like it's chaos that's going on, according to Jesus, God rules and reigns over that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus says God's in control even of a bird that falls and dies. And then he uses that to dissolve our fears. He says, and if that's true, if God is noticing and in control even of when a bird falls and dies, then certainly he's in control of the things that go on in your lives. So he says, so don't be fearful. You've got a good God who's ruling and reigning over the events of your life, even the chaotic things, so you don't need to be weighed down by your anxiety. Verse 3, he says, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. So there are times when soldiers have to go out to war, and there are times when peace treaties are signed and wars are over. Borders change, nations change, and the most powerful forces in the world, wars and armies, are all under the control of God. Now this doesn't mean that people don't make real decisions, and it doesn't mean that we are not responsible for the things that we do. The Bible teaches that too, that we do decide things, and we are responsible for things but even those decisions that we, we make are being reigned over by a good and powerful God. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 2. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So all the decisions, even the bad ones, that are being made by politicians and those who are in authority, God's turning those for his glory. So all of human history is this story that's being told by God. And what we see in this chapter is that God has the same relationship to his creation that an author has to, the, to a book. That this is his story that he's telling and he's guiding it toward its intended purposes. 
I heard one author say this week that this whole thing is a story. All these stories, all of them, billions, trillions of stories, the whole thing is going to come together at the last day as promised in Romans 8.28 with trillions of plot points all resolved and no remainder. All the tattered stories that are in this room, all the billions of tattered stories that attend God's people all over the, all over the world, all of these things are going to be resolved and no remainder. And the great throng will be gathered before the throne and they will cry out with a voice like many waters and they'll cry out, that was the best story that we ever heard. So God's telling a story with our lives. And we are all in seasons that he's put us in. And he's put us in those seasons so that we can meet God there, so we can know more of God there, and so that the next chapter of his story can unfold. And so when we look around at the world around us and it looks like chaos and we don't understand it, the confidence we can have is that we don't understand fully all of God's ways, but we do know that he's ruling and reigning over this thing. And when we read the Bible, it does talk about what things will be like in the end. It describes this end of the world and this return of Christ. And if God's planned out the end, then he's planned out the means that it takes to get to that end. You you can't plan a trip to Florida and not plan how to get there. And so everything that's going on in our lives, even when we don't understand it, even when it's dark, it's all part of how to get there. Now, we don't have a great answer for why there's evil in the world. I mean, we know that the Bible says that God's not the author of evil, and so he's not guilty in the same way that people are guilty when there's evil. But if we look at all the world and all of history as a story that God's telling, then the presence of evil starts to make some sense. You know, if a story doesn't have any evil in it, if there's no antagonist, if there's no enemy, if there's no obstacle to overcome, then it's really not a good story. It's actually pretty boring. You know, if the kids open up the, the wardrobe and they go into Narnia and they spend hundreds of pages just making snow angels and then coming home, you're going to say, that's a lame story. Um, that, that was pointless. There, there was nothing to that. I mean, they had a fun day playing in the snow. That's not a story at all. But if they go through the wardrobe and they get to Narnia and there's a white witch there, who seems like she's ruling and reigning because it's always winter and never Christmas and so much is bad, but Aslan's on the move and he's this good lion who's unsafe and untamed. You never know what he's going to do, but he's going to conquer in the end and the white witch is going to be defeated and they're going to become kings and princes in the process. You read that and you say, that's a great story. But that great story wouldn't be great without the presence of the obstacles and the evil. So you might be in life right now looking at some evil that's right in front of you an obstacle, something that's dark. You don't understand how God could be good and still even have that thing in his world. And we don't have perfect answers, but we do know that he's telling a story. And that obstacle's part of that story. And in the end, one day it'll all resolve because he promised us that he's going to work all things together for our good. And that means all things. So we're going to be able to look back on that last day and say, God, you're the greatest storyteller there ever was. That was a great story. We were part of your great story and you're the hero of it. So he keeps going, verse 4. He says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, even if you're a Baptist. Um, it, it says that. So uh, if, if, if you want to cross that out, you go ahead. But I know you're against that too. Um, so, so you're kind of in a rough spot. Um, but he says, there are times for these things. Uh, there, there's a time for weeping because weeping is appropriate. But then also there's a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn. And there is a time to dance in appropriate Baptist ways. Um, But I know in seriousness that some of you guys are right now in a season where you look at it and you say, this is a time to weep. 
You've lost a family member. You've lost a friend. You've moved away from home and you're lonely. Uh, you, you've lost a dream or a direction or a career. Uh, plans change. Plans fail. And it just seems like life around you is broken. Well, what this teaches us is that even that season has been appointed for you by God. And there's good for you in it. Solomon even says this in Ecclesiastes 7 two. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So even in that time of mourning, you're there for a reason, and it's so you can know God. It's so that you can know who he is. Now, now when you're there, it's super important that you know what kind of God is in control of this stuff. Some people read this passage, and a lot of the commentaries even say that this chapter is pretty fatalistic, where Solomon's just saying, yeah, God's up there, and he's in control, but we're like rats in his maze, and we just have to go through these seasons. There's nothing we can do about it. We never know what he's going to do. We can't control it, so why bother? Because he's just up there being sovereign. Well, I don't think that's what Solomon's saying, because in verse 11, he says he's made all things beautiful in its time. There's beauty in what he's doing. But as we look at the story of the Bible and keep telling the rest of the story, we learn the heart of the God who's in control when we see Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus shows up and he experiences all the times and the seasons that we experience. So when we look at our lives and we say, I can't imagine what God's doing with this. I can't imagine the reason for this. We know in Jesus Christ and because of his cross that the reason can't possibly be because he doesn't care. It can't possibly be that he doesn't understand. Because he did step in and experience it. Jesus did take on flesh. Jesus experienced the loss of a friend and he wept at the tomb. So the seasons that we go through, the times to weep and the times to dance, Jesus went through those seasons too. And then he showed us his heart toward us by giving his life for us on the cross. So the fact that God is in control is not good news by itself because what if God's a jerk? It's not good when a jerk is in control. But when we see the God of the cross, who gave his life for us, then we've got some real good news. Because not only do we have a God who's in control of all things and has appointed the times and seasons that we live in, but we have a God who's in control of all things and loves us. Loves us enough to die for us. Loves us enough to give his son for us. So the one who's running this place is good. And that makes it a season for dancing and laughing for us. I mean, we look at the worst event that ever happened in history. Jesus Christ is being crucified. And that looks like it's nothing but bad. It looks like a terrible thing. But God was able to turn that around so that three days later, it was his moment of greatest triumph. That time of weeping became a time for laughing. The time of death became a time for living. Jesus rose again, and he had the last laugh on Satan. And so we look back on what at the time looked like the worst day in history, and we call it Good Friday, because God's able to take the bad and turn it around and work it for our good. So we believe the gospel, which is good news, not just that God's in control, but that God is very, very good. You see this all throughout the Bible, that the picture that we need to help us, especially in those seasons of weeping, we need a picture of a colossal God who's over all things and running all things, and that's the only place we can go for our healing. In fact, if you want to hold your finger in Ecclesiastes 3 and go over to Job chapter 38, uh, these two books are, are similar in a way, because in Ecclesiastes, Solomon experiences everything that the world has to offer. He experiences it without God, and he said, it's all meaningless and it doesn't do it for me. 
He can't find happiness. He can't find peace. He can't find joy anywhere that he looks when he tries to experience the world without God, even though he has every experience the world has to offer. With Job, Job starts with everything that the world has to offer and then loses it all. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. He loses a good relationship with his wife. He loses his health. Everything falls apart. Everything's broken. And his conclusion by the end of that book is that God is in control and he knows what he's doing. And throughout that book, he experiences that even though he lost everything, God is good and God's enough. So in this book so far in Job, at the very beginning, Job loses everything and then his friends come and they spend chapter after chapter trying to give a good reason for why God must have done these things to him. And their answers are all bad. Um, There's one friend who got them right, but the other friends, their answers are pretty much, you know, Job, God wouldn't do this if you hadn't done some pretty bad stuff. There must be some secret sin in your life. God is fair. He's just. You obviously deserve the loss of your kids. You deserve that great wind that comes and knocks a house down on them. You deserve your lack of health. You deserve the loss of all your finances, all your herds. You must have done something. And the friends are all saying that, and Job's saying, listen, I'm not a perfect man, but I'm not different than anybody else. So if I deserve it, these other guys must deserve it too. Uh, This can't be given to me because of something that was in my life because anything that's in my life was in their life too. So it's not a satisfactory answer for Job. And they go back and forth arguing about what God's doing and why he's doing all this. And then the place where the real healing happens is when God opens his mouth and starts talking. And what God says is not the power of positive thinking. It's not, Job, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. God says, take your eyes off yourself and look over here. Listen to what God says. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. So he comes, and he doesn't even interact with these little human arguments these guys are making. He comes, and he says, tell me where you were when I made the world. Oh, you weren't there. No, because I made you too. So maybe I'm wiser and stronger and more powerful than you, and you should trust me. Then he keeps going. He says, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea? with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God said, I formed the world with my wisdom. The angels were singing and rejoicing. I made the sea and those waves of the sea that nobody could ever hold back in a hurricane. They're coming. They're going to destroy. I tell them where to stop, and they stop. So God comes and paints a picture for Job of his control over everything. That even to the proud waves, he looks at them. He says, this far and not an inch farther, and they stop right there. And because he's good, and because we know that from the cross, This is great news. This means that anything that's in our lives, even in the times of weeping, there's an appointed season for those things, and at whatever time he sees fit in his goodness and wisdom that's well beyond ours, God can say, this far and no further, this is where it stops. So if you're in that season, trust that. Trust that there is that healing, that there will be a time for laughter and rejoicing again. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. 
Verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So he says there's a season for your suffering. You're going to suffer for a little while, and then the God of glory and grace is going to end it. He's going to fix it, and he's going to give you that time for laughing and dancing again. This is a picture of God that we need. A God who is over all things, even when we don't understand him. Listen to Isaiah 45, verse 5. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now that is a big picture of a God with a lot of control and a lot of power and honestly not a popular one in churches today. A lot of times you go to church and we hear about our bigness and our greatness and our power and our potential, but what we desperately need when we we are in those seasons of weeping or in the seasons of laughing, we all need to hear about the one who's above and over all of this, all of us, even over the waves, even over the chaos, and he can say this stops here and no further because he rules and reigns. He has every right in the universe. And he's good. So we need him. We need, we need to know about the seasons that he's appointed so that we can find him in those seasons and seek him. And we need to trust that he's good and that he's appointed them for a reason while we're going through them. Ecclesiastes verse, or chapter 3, verse 5. He says, There is a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So you might say, okay, I could believe that God's in control of the chaotic ocean, but there's no way he could be in control of my chaotic relationship life. It it is way too crazy. Um, I mean, there are ups and downs. This says that he's in charge of those times of embracing and those times where you refrain from embracing. So if you're in a place where you say, man, I would love to be married someday. I would love for there to be a time for embracing. He, He may give you that time, and more often than not, he does. But until he does, you're in a time to refrain from embracing. And that time has beauty too. That time has something important for you to learn about God too. There's something that he's working and forming in your heart in that season. And our job is not to look to every other season and say, I want to be in that one. Our job is to look to God in the season that we're in and say, what is there that I need to learn about him right here, right now? Verse 6, it says, there's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. So there are times where we should keep things. The thing that's broken, and you think, okay, I'll put this on my shelf, and I'll fix it and use it someday. There are other times, hoarders, to just throw stuff out. Um, Just (laughs) to let it go. Um, It's not going to be fixed. Those clothes aren't going to fit you again. Um, Just just throw them out. (laughs) Let them go. I had this uh, collection of old T-shirts. I don't collect very much at all. I'm much more of a, it's always a time to throw things out guy. Um, But I had all these old T-shirts. And when you're in ministry, you get T-shirts for like every event during the year. Like you you go to this conference, you get the T-shirt. And so I had all these T-shirts. Awesome. Uh, I had all these T-shirts from years and years and years going all the way back to elementary school, um, just different events that I had gone to. And my wife, you know, as the drawers are overflowing and we're packing them in, I'm hanging on to them for no reason whatsoever. She was good to be able to say, you know, there is a time to be able to throw things away. 
And, and we can say, oh, no, I, I've attached so much nostalgia to this thing. It, it's just stuff. There's time to chuck stuff. I had this sweatshirt. When I worked at camp, a group of guys, we formed a fraternity called Omega Pi Rho. And um, this, the job of this fraternity, at first we had a purpose. We would go out at night and we would burn bees' nests. So if there was like a ground hive or a bees' hive in like a log or something, we would go out with a can of Coleman fuel and a lighter and, and burn it. And so at first we were doing a service, but then we burned all the bees' nests we knew about, and then we just went out and burned stuff. But it was... Uh, Omega Pyro, and we had the sweatshirt, and it was embroidered, and something happened since I was in high school where that sweatshirt shrunk a lot, um, and so it's, it's the fat guy in a little coat thing where it just doesn't fit, and I had to let it go. There's a time to say, I don't need to hang on to these things anymore. It's no longer the season where I'm going to wear that sweatshirt. Sometimes we attach a little bit too much value to our stuff, and he says, there is a time to keep some things, But also feel free to let those things go because all of life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that we possess. Verse 7, he says, There's a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. This is big because it seems like uh, among Christians, there are the people who don't understand that there is a time to be silent on the one hand and the people who don't understand that there's a time to speak on the other hand. You know, sometimes we have this mentality, I just got to speak my mind and I got to do it all the time. And I just, these people need to know what I'm thinking. Well, that's not always the answer. People don't always need to know what I'm thinking. I don't have to say everything I think. In fact, it'd be really unwise, and I wouldn't be recognizing God's sovereign control over all things if I thought every season it was a time for me to be piping up and speaking my mind. But then there are other times where I say, yeah, I, I just don't want to talk. I'll let God be in control. Let him rule over things. But it says that there is a time for us to speak. And part of being a wise Christian is being discerning of of what season this is and what my role is in this season that God has appointed. And he talks about how God's sovereign over even our emotions. He says there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So we have seasons for every purpose, and it was all determined by a good God who rules and reigns over everything. So how do we apply that? Solomon applies it. Look at verse 9. He says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So number one, we're supposed to look for the beauty that God has put in every season of life because it's there. If these seasons were made by God, they were made for our good, they were made so we could get to know him, then in those seasons, there should be something beautiful that we can enjoy and something about God to be known. Our mistake is that we tend to mentally live in a different season. We live in the future when we'll finally be out of this season. It'll be better when I finally get there. Or we live in the past, and it's all nostalgia, where things were better way back then, and and ever since then, just nothing's been good. We end up being like Uncle Rico, where we, we look into the past and, and always remember the glory days of high school football. And apparently we're not in the season when people understand Napoleon Dynamite references. But um, it was, we, we look back and we say, those were the best days. Those were the glory days. That's when things were good. Every season that we're in has some beauty. And you say, man, you haven't been here. Uh, man, I, I used to have this great job and now I'm making half of what I used to make and I'm working more hours. How can you say there's beauty in that season? Well, it's not the espada season anymore, but it might be the peanut butter and jelly season. And 
that's beautiful in its time. That, that's got some beauty to it. And so it's good to appreciate that, hey, I'm having more meals at home and with my family. And, and we're less focused on out there and more focused on in here. There is good that happens even in this season that isn't great. And it's only if we really see that God's over these seasons and that he's good that we'll be able to find anything beautiful in them at all when they're dark. You see this in the Chronicles of Narnia where you've got the beavers in their hut. And in that hut, it's warm and there's food, and there's a party, and they're laughing, and they're optimistic about things. But outside, it's still always winter and never Christmas. There's still this white witch that's ruling over everything. But the reason they have hope inside that hut and the warmth inside that hut is because Aslan's on the move. Something is going to happen. Something is going to change. There's someone who's appointed this season, and at the right time, this season is going to lift, and things are going to be different. This is important for us when seasons are dark to say that, to be able to say, Jesus is on the move even now. I don't know what he's doing. I don't see how he's good, but I know he must be good because of the cross. I know he must be in control because there's so much that's clearly out of my control. So let me find the beauty here and not feel like I have to live in a different year or a different decade or a different era. My hope needs to be in Christ even in this season. So look for the beauty, number one. Number two, embrace the mystery. Look at verse 11 again. It says, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the way things were made is that we aren't supposed to be able to understand everything that God's doing. We aren't supposed to be able to figure out all of his plan. We were actually made that way. We were made to not get it. We're made to not get God fully. We don't have the brains for that. We don't have the minds for that. He's the infinite one, and we're finite. Just embrace the fact that there always is going to be some mystery. I mean, I'm sure on that day when Jesus was arrested, and and the Bible says that he was handed over to the hands of sinful men, but in Acts chapter 2, it says it happened according to the sovereign plan of God. So you've got God carrying out his plan that involves Jesus being handed over to sinful people, Jesus goes for a trial that's all bad. I mean, they treat him badly. They, they, he doesn't speak. They, they drum up false witnesses. They can't line up the charges. Nothing's legit in that trial. You look at that and you say, this is all bad. There's no good in this at all. Nobody could have seen the good when the Son of God was being nailed to the cross. They never would have gotten it. But three days later, he rose. So he knows what he's doing. Sometimes the place we're living is Good Friday. And we don't see how it's good. It just looks dark and bleak and hopeless. But we need to embrace the mystery that says, God says everything's not dark and bleak and hopeless. He says he's in control. He says he's over everything. And I know he's good because of the cross. So I can just live fully in the season that I'm in, look for some beauty in the season that I'm in without having to understand everything. There's always going to be mystery. Listen to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are secret things that belong to God. And as Christians, we need to embrace that. It's part of recognizing that he's God, we're not. He's author, we're book. And the characters in the book don't understand everything that the author's doing. it's, It's safe to say that Romeo and Juliet didn't know an awful lot about Shakespeare at all. But that doesn't mean that he's not there writing the thing. It doesn't mean that he's not good. So we embrace the mystery and then just enjoy the season he's put us in. Verse 12, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. So he says, enjoy where you are. Don't let what you can't know destroy what you could enjoy. Don't let what's beyond you ruin what's before you. Be here, now, looking for the beauty, looking for the hand of God, learning from God during the season that you're in, embracing that there's all kinds of mystery, mystery and we can't always understand the darkness, but we do know that we've got a great God who's good. So Jesus speaks to us through his word here, and he says, I've got this thing under control. I've got it. I know it doesn't look like it. I know at times it seems like it's not in control, but it is. I've got this thing, and I'm working it all out for your good and for my glory. And that's the Jesus we serve. And if you look at the way he worked within all these seasons and how he shows his control and the way that he's able to turn even the dark seasons for good, I mean, he goes in and, and here's this time for his body to be cast away in death. But three days later, he turns it into a time where his body can be gathered back together and he can rise again. He accepted the time for weeping and mourning when he died on the cross. And three days later, there's a time for laughing and dancing that came from it. He accepted a time for his body to be torn. And three days later, it was sown and we are sown. We're mended because of the work that Jesus did. Jesus accepted his time to be silent in his trials. And he didn't speak a word like a lamb that goes to slaughter. And now because of that, we can speak his praise. We have a time to speak. Jesus goes to the cross, and there he accepts this is his time for war. And he goes to war against our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And because of that, we have peace with God forever. We've got our time for peace. Jesus is the one who governs all these times and all these seasons. And if we believed that, I just don't think it would be possible for us to be as anxious as we are. I don't think we'd be able to carry the worries as much as we do. The reason that we have them is because we really believe I need to be in control. But if we can recognize that there's a God who's determined our times and seasons, he's put us there for our good, to experience some beauty, to meet him, for us to live fully in those seasons, fix some problems, but ultimately hope in that God who's good and who's in control, it can free us from that worry. It can free us from that despair. In a minute, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, and this is a reminder that God stepped in to our times and our seasons. It's a reminder that he stepped into this material world and allowed himself even to be governed by those rhythms that he had appointed. And in those seasons, in all of them, he did good. He lived for his father. He, he never sinned. He never failed. He never fell short in any season that he was in. And then he died on the cross. He died there. He was buried. And he rose again. And it was all for our sin. It was all for us. It was all so that, so that we could be forgiven. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are showing his death until he comes. And on the one hand, it is a time for mourning because Jesus had to die for my sin because it was so bad. But at the same time, it's a time for rejoicing because he did. And now I'm loved and accepted by God. So as we take communion together, we're confessing our sins. We're confessing that we're worse than we even think we are but also we're rejoicing that we're more loved and accepted than we ever could have imagined because his body was torn, his blood was spilled, and that happened for us. So as we sing the next couple songs, I'd urge you to, to confess sin 
And whenever you'd like to, come and take communion from the front tables or the one in the back or the ones up in the balcony. This is for Christians. Uh, If you're here and you're not a believer in Christ at all, we would encourage you to stay in your seat as we take the Lord's Supper. But what I'm not saying with that is that you have to be a perfect Christian to take the Lord's Supper because we would have a lot of bread left over if that was, was how it worked. What we're saying as we take the supper is that all of us had sinned. All of us had fallen short. We all recognize we don't have a resume. And whether your faith today is weak or your faith is strong, if you have faith in Jesus, we would urge you to confess your sin and take this supper in celebration of how it was paid for, by, for you when Jesus died on the cross. If you say, I don't have faith in Jesus at all, maybe during this time you could even pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. Say, God, if you're really there, open my eyes. Help me to see it. Help me to believe it. I don't want to miss it if you're really there. But this celebration is a celebration for Christians to take together. Uh, But for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Well, Christians, as you look at your life, you know, it's always good as we open the scripture and, and look in the mirror that is the word of God to us. It's good for us to confess the ways that we've fallen short. And particularly in these areas of of having to be in control and being anxious, I think we've got a lot of evidence that we don't believe like we should. And so let's confess those to God. Let's confess that that we've fallen short and that we've stepped into the role of the sovereign over our lives. We've sat on his throne. Let's confess that and ask Jesus to be on that throne and and for that to be be a conscious thing for us. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, this might even be your first time here, your first time you're hearing these things, I want you to know that becoming a Christian is not a matter of joining this church or any other church. It's not a matter of signing up for a religion. But it's a matter of recognizing the truth that this bread and and this juice symbolize. They symbolize the fact that Jesus Christ came and he died. The way that we get to God is not by our good works, but it's the fact that he came and he died for us to bridge the gap between us and God. The death that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, he absorbed it. And then because he did, we can be free from it. So admit your sinfulness, admit you've fallen short. Trust in Jesus that he died and was buried and rose again for you and cry out to him and ask him to save you. And he promises that if you cry out to him in whatever words you want in simple faith, that he will. He'll wash away your sins. He'll cleanse you. He'll adopt you as his child. And he'll promise you that even if you're not in it now, in the future, you'll see him face to face. And it'll be a time to laugh, time to dance, time to rejoice. Our Father, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that your word reveals that you're in control just like your world does. But at the same time, your word reveals that you're good because your cross reveals that to us. So God, make us people who believe that. Free us from our anxieties and worries. I pray that we'd cast them on you, humble ourselves before you, and live like you really are in control and like that's a really good thing. Jesus, we thank you for your death for us that shows us that more clearly than anything. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray that we would be celebrating all that you've done in laying down your life so that we could have life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship in any time during these songs. There are tables in the front and one in the back and a couple in the balcony. And you can uh, take the bread and you can either dip it in the large cup or you can drink from one of the small cups. Uh, and you can do it right at the table and leave the cup there. Um, but right now during these songs, be singing, be confessing sin. And whenever you'd like, you can take the Lord's Supper.